Jesus, we come before you in your strong name, and we ask that you do a new work this evening. Pour out your spirit upon us, we pray. Send your fire, Lord. Lord, where there is chaff in our heart, where there is things that we have given ourselves to that are not of you, may those things be burned up in the name of Jesus and reestablish our devotion for you, Christ. Lord, we give our hearts once again to you. And as we engage and enter into this Lenten season, Lord, do a work in us that we could say at the end of it that you have taken us from one degree of glory to the next. By the power of your spirit, change us even this evening. Change us, we pray. And not in our power, not in our strength, but in yours. Amen. Happy Lent. The question that we're going to be asking through the Lenten season is how is the Lord calling us to return? How do we need to return to the Lord? Returning to the Lord is a common theme, not only in the liturgical season of Lent, for example, it starts off with this day called Ash Wednesday, and we're going to have in a little bit the imposition of ashes in which we say, uh, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And that is true, at least partially, but if we are believers in Jesus, if we've returned to the Lord, that's not ultimately true, because we have hope in the resurrection. So even on Ash Wednesday, the word is return to the Lord. Lent is all about returning back unto the Lord. The book of Malachi, the book that we're going to be going through during this Lenten season, is all about returning to the Lord. Because if you know anything about the book of Malachi, it's the last book of the Bible. So if you don't know where it's at, just go like Matthew and then go back a little bit. Uh, And there you'll find Malachi. But the setting of Malachi is that the people have returned to the land. The people have returned to the city. The people have returned to the temple. But the people's hearts haven't returned to the Lord. And so the Lord speaking through Malachi to the people, he's saying, return to me and you will have life. So for example, Malachi 3 verse 7, ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. The very last verse of the book of Malachi, he says, he will turn, speaking of John the Baptist when he comes out of the scene, he will turn the hearts of the children back to the parents, the hearts of the parents back unto the children. So Malachi can be seen in the sense of like a door because it closes the Old Testament canon and the last word as the door is being closed is return, is to turn. And the first message comes through John the Baptist and what does John the Baptist say? Turn back to the Lord. And so that's why we're going through the book of Malachi during this Lenten season and even now we're gonna ask the question, how do you, how do I, how do we need to return to the Lord? We're going to begin in the section, uh, the sermon series, Malachi 1 through 1 through 5. And in this, we're going to see three things. First is the obstacle for returning to the Lord. Second, the basis for returning to the Lord. And then thirdly, what will the results be as we return to the Lord? So first, what is the obstacle for returning to the Lord? And that's found in verses 1 and 2. A prophecy of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. A couple observations. Malachi literally means a messenger. He's fulfilling his role. Uh, A prophecy, that word literally means to lift a heavy burden. Malachi, the word that you're bringing, it's it's, it's heavy. It's important. It's urgent. It's going to be challenging for the people to hear, but it's absolutely necessary for life and salvation. Verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, speaking of the people, how have you loved us? Now, that's a question. The people are asking the Lord, how have you loved us? 
You may think that that's a question that comes from an invitation into a relationship, but there's a couple ways that you could ask a question, either to get closer into relationship or actually a smokescreen to remove yourself from relationship and the responsibility therein. And that's what's taking place here. In the book of Malachi, it's structured according to six different disputes, disputes of the people toward the Lord. And these disputes, and that's what we're actually going to be going through during the season of Lent, this is the first dispute. And the question is not coming from an intrigue with a desire to get closer to the Lord. It's coming from probably one of two motivations, either skepticism or cynicism. Skepticism throws up questions like smokescreen for the purpose of not engaging and committing to a relationship. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be disappointed. So I'm going to continue to ask questions so that I don't have to commit myself to the relationship. That's skepticism. And that could be the motivation that's going on here. They're just asking skeptical questions so as to elude a committed relationship to the Lord. In other words, they're going to be an intelligent observer on the sidelines, but never engaging in relationship. But the second possibility is cynicism, and that's what I think is what's going on here. Cynicism is asking a different question, because that question has already drawn the conclusion. So it's not a question that's wanting more information. It's actually a question of accusation and attack. How have you loved us? Show us the proof. And that's what's happening here. Cynicism, in the words of one author, has a general distrust of the other's motives. We don't trust you, God, because you haven't come through the way that we thought you would come through. Cynicism distrusts others' motives. Cynicism believes others' desires are driven by ambition, greed, or materialism. It it assumes an ambitious goals are unattainable and ultimately meaningless, so the only appropriate response is ridicule. God, I don't trust you, and your goals are meaningless. So this question is not a question of intrigue, but a question of accusation. And that's what I believe is going on here. Now, this cynicism is all over in our culture. We're cynical about marriage, cynical about Singleness, singleness, uh, cynicism, too many cynical about the economy, cynical about like political leaders, cynical about religious leaders, cynical about leaders in general, cynical about like the media, the, the news. I mean, anything that comes our way, there's just this posture of cynicism. And unfortunately, what's taking place out in the culture can actually seep its way into the culture of the church. And we as believers, as followers of Christ, can also take on that posture of being cynical. It gets inside of us. And there's nothing that destroys and kills the antibodies of joy, of life, of hope, and of faith than cynicism. If you want to have a distrustful congregation, a joyless congregation, and a faithless congregation, be cynical. And that's going to be the obstacle of a relationship with the Lord. John Ortberg says... Scratch the surface of any cynic and you will find a wounded idealist underneath. Because of a previous pain or disappointment, cynics make their conclusions about life before the questions have been asked. This means that beyond just seeing what is wrong with the world, cynics lack lack the courage to do something about it. The dynamic beneath cynicism is a fear of accepting responsibility. Underneath the surface of a cynic is one who is a wounded idealist. I experienced that when, when I was at um, first or second year in seminary, I was a worship leader. Those days have long passed. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. You don't want me to do that. I was, I was a worship leader and, and, and passionate. 
I remember after one time with chapel, and, and also I, would, I had started this um, prayer group where, where a few of us were coming together and just praying for revival, praying for God would intervene, praying that God would do miraculous things. And this person who came up to me knew that I had this group that we were praying for revival, and also he saw how I was worshiping. And he came up to me. He came from a charismatic background. And he, and he said, I used to be passionate just like you, but now I've matured. Then he said... What seminary is going to do to you, it's going to become a cemetery to your soul. And I thought to myself, I, I do not want you as my mentor. <laughs> Cynicism had seeped its way into his soul. And we as believers, we could be cynical about prayer. Will God do anything? Cynical about God's presence. Is he really here? Cynical about God working. Is he really involved in my life? Cynical about the beauty and the necessity of the church? We can become so cynical. And that is the obstacle of returning to the Lord because it removes us from relationship. All right, so what is the basis then of returning to the Lord? And that answer is found in verses two through five. I have loved you, says the, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? This is his answer. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? That was a little bit of a surprise answer. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Then he goes on to say, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, which is the descendants of Esau, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. What is happening here and how could this be the basis of love? I mean, how could, how could this be the love of the Lord? It doesn't make sense. A number of questions we may ask will be, why answer the question on love with Esau is Jacob's brother? Second, why does he love Jacob but hate Esau? And why does he destroy Edom? A few observations. First, is that the scriptures are pulling from a principle of priority. That's the emphasis here. He's not saying, I literally hate Esau and I literally hate Edom. It's the principle of priority. I have a, my electing love has been put upon Jacob for a particular purpose, which we'll look at in just a second. Electing love. I have placed Jacob in regards to the plan of salvation as a priority over Esau. Jesus does the same thing in Luke chapter 14. He says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, then you need to hate your mother, father, wife, children, or spouse, children, your son, daughter, even your own life, you need to hate if you want to follow me. Now, question, does Jesus hate Mary and Joseph, his parents? No. What is Jesus saying? It's the, it's the principle of priority. That if you follow the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you worship him, love him, then all of your other loves will be ordered rightly. The only way that we can fully love our spouse or fully love our friends or fully love our family, the only way that we can fully love others is if we put as a priority our love of God above all things. The same principle applies here. God is saying... I have put my, my, uh, my electing love upon Jacob, but for what purpose? For the purpose, Jacob was blessed to be a blessing to the nations. It wasn't a blessing of privilege as it was, a, it was a responsibility. 
to show God's great love to the nations. Why was Jacob blessed? Why was he chosen? Was it because he was good? If you know anything about Jacob, no. <laughs> Abraham's father in Joshua 24.2 is called wicked, evil. Abraham was a liar. Isaac was a liar. Jacob was a deceiver. So why was he chosen? Because he was good? No, but because of God's grace. Because of God's great grace, that's why. And for what purpose? For blessing the nations. It says in Genesis 28, verse 14, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. My blessings will come through you for the purpose of bringing in the nations. In other words, the way I'm going to love the nations, bless the nations, is through you. And the reason why Edom had a curse put on it is because they're trying to seek the blessing for themselves. Notice verse 4. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. The only way that Edom can be blessed is through the person that God had blessed, which was Jacob. It's not for the purpose of exclusion, it's for the purpose of bringing in. Jacob was blessed to be a blessing, and the motivation for that was love. Uh, here's a case study, Pharaoh. It says in Exodus that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and it says that 19 times. Half of the time it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Half the time it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So which is it? Yeah, yes. Now, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? How we answer that question is incredibly important. All throughout the plagues, God continues to reach out to Pharaoh to bring him in. He continues to want to bless the people of God for the purpose of blessing the nations. God continues to be patient with Pharaoh, long-suffering with Pharaoh, for the purpose of bringing Pharaoh in. So how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? It was by showing him love. The Puritans used to say that the same sun that hardens the clay softens the wax. The love that softened Moses' heart was the love that hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the motivation was love. It was God's love. God's love blessed Jacob for the purpose of blessing the nations, to bring people to himself. And he did this. Notice, this is the last book of the Bible, I'm, the Old Testament. And he's referring back to the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis, over 1,200 years ago. When he, so when he says, Jacob, I've loved, he's hearkening back to 1,200 years and saying, generation after generation after generation, I have been faithful to you even though you have not been faithful to me. That's the point of this passage. The basis of our returning to the Lord is his love. And here's another principle. God connects before he corrects. That's also a parenting principle. You connect, and that's a friendship principle. That's a counseling principle. You connect before you correct. And in the, everything within me, when my kids come home, and their lid is flipped, and they're super emotional, I've had the worst day. The, the first thing I want to do is just say, stop it. You know, settle that. Be quiet. What's the best thing to do? It's to get down, to empathize with them, to listen to them, to ask them questions, to be entered so that they feel like they have been felt, so that they understand that you are with them. That's an incredibly important parenting lesson, friendship lesson, counseling lesson. We connect before we correct. That's exactly what the Lord is doing here. And I will, we, we have to continue to hold on to this throughout the book of Malachi because the, because the Lord will correct through the book of Malachi. 
But we have to see that throughout, of it, throughout the entire book is the motivation of God and his love for his people to return to him. So my prayer is that during this Lenten season that we return to him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because we can come back to a God with all of our stuff, with all of our junk, with all of our mess. By the way, God, Jesus will not transform the person that you pretend to be. Jesus will transform the person that you are. So don't hold anything back. Bring your stuff to the Lord. Bring everything to the Lord. He can handle it. He is loving. He is kind. If you're angry with God, you have all sorts of passages in Scripture of people angry with God. Bring it to the Lord. He is loving. He's kind. Slow to anger. He's compassionate. He's abounding in steadfast, loyal love. That's the basis. All right, lastly, what is the result? It's obedience. Now, this goes with the structure of Malachi. Like I said, there's six disputes in there, and the disputes, the areas are in five different areas. It's in the areas of worship, the areas of faithfulness, generosity, justice, and a changed heart. What the Lord is calling his people back to is a life of obedience. Michael Foucault um, has this theory of normalization that basically says this, every society will set up its cultural and value and its norms. And anybody that steps outside of those norms will be um, ruthlessly punished. If anybody deviates from those uh, social norms, you know, ruthlessly punished. And you have it in any kind of society. I mean, everybody has their cultural societal norms. And we also have our individual uh, normalization of self and what we think and deem as what is right and wrong. But society has that as well. And that helps to explain why in Nazi Germany, some of the citizens were able to do what some of them, would do, what some of them did. I mean, just atrocious things. How is that possible? It's the, it's the theory of the normalization of society that you had somebody at the top rewrite a script, you had the experts come in, and you had people continually saying certain things about what is right and what is wrong, and all of a sudden, the norms of society began to shift. And then you had the younger generation say, you know, what can I do? I'm only one person. You get a part of the, the Nazi youth. You know, what can I do? I'm only one person. I'm just taking orders. All of a sudden, entire society begins to shift. How is that possible? The normalization of society. And if we are not careful, the exact same thing will take place within the church. And the cultural values and the cultural norms will seep their way into the church, into the body of Christ. And then the church will look no different than the society around it. How is that possible? Normalization of society. And if we're not careful, our worship will be watered down. And our relationships will look no different than the society around us. How we spend our money, how we view justice, no different than the society around us. How is that possible? Normalization. You know, what can I do? I'm only one person. And yet what we're called to be and to do as a church is to live a life of radical obedience to the things of the word of God. What Christ has called us to do, he calls us to bid, he bids us to come and die, to live according to his word. Brennan Manning says, because we approach the gospel with preconceived notions of what, should, what it should say rather than what it does say, the word no longer falls like rain on the parched ground of our souls. It no longer sweeps like a wild storm into the corners of a com in the corners of our comfortable piety. It no longer vibrates like sharp lightning in the dark recesses of our non-historic orthodoxy. The gospel becomes, in the words of Gertrude Stein, a pattering of pious platitudes spoken by a Jewish carpenter in the distant past. That's what his word becomes, just pi pious platitudes and we become no different than the society around us. 
And the invitation for us during this Lenten season, listen, is to return to the Lord, to stop our cynicism. At the first service, I was praying over the chairs, and I got this vision. I got this vision of the entire church erupting and playing, like jumping over the chairs and playing, playing in the Lord, playing with one another. And the scripture came to mind about that we are called to have a childlike faith. May that be us. May we be a community of childlike faith during this Lenten season to return to the Lord, bring our entire self in. And as we do so, we will walk in obedience to his ways. Now I want to give one quick point of application. There are two resources that have been sent out today and they'll be continually sent out during the season of Lent. One is um, an adult devotional guide that was written by Tara. Another is a family discipleship guide written by Sarah Sigler. I would encourage you. You might be here and you say, Lent snuck up, on, snuck up on me. I don't have my disciplines. I don't know what I'm giving up or taking down or what I'm doing. That's okay. That's what Lent is for. I'd encourage you to take those um, discipleship guides and engage them with community. And as you do so, may you begin to live into the discipleship practices and a life of obedience that the Lord is inviting you into in the context of community. So at the end of Lent, what we've given up or laid down doesn't just last for 40 days, but our discipleship practices and our life of obedience last for the next 40 years. And we'll be able to say at the end of Lent what it says in Acts 3.19, repent, turn to the Lord, so that your sins might be wiped out and the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That's what Lent is all about. Times of refreshment coming from the Lord. Let's take a moment of silence before the imposition of ashes and allow the Spirit of God to speak to us, encourage us, and prepare us as we come forward to receive the ashes.